Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Well, good morning, church. How are we? All right, good. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. Again, I'm going to keep it really for you this morning, Genesis 1-1. All right, so we covered half of that last week. We'll be covering the other half of it uh, this week. And so if you're new with us, my name is Dwayne, one of the pastors here um, at the district. Welcome to the district. Uh, we are also at the start of a new series. And so we began a new series last week called Christian Story, Christian Belief, and Christian Formation. And what we're really wanting to do over the next few months is just sort of walk through, uh, or I say walk through, it's, it's much more of a flyover of the meta-narrative of Scripture. And so what is God revealing to us? What is He saying to us from Genesis to Revelation? What is He revealing about Himself? What is the story of the Bible? And then what are we to believe about it? What are we to believe about really the four major buckets of Scripture, which is the creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration? What, what, what are we to believe about those things? And then lastly, formation. How is what the Bible is saying and what we are believing about the Bible, how does it then inform our daily lives? How does it transform us to become more like Jesus? Because is that not our goal? Is that not why we're here today is to become more like Jesus. If you're, if you're here and the goal is to not become more like Jesus, for, for him to be glorified, for him to be worshipped, for him to be honored, um, and, and for your good and for your joy and for your satisfaction, if that's not the goal, then, then go somewhere else. I mean, like this, we're not here. Again, one of the worst hobbies you can have is Christianity. There's so many better hobbies out there to do than just Christianity. Like our goal is to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And so that's what we want to look at as we continue walking through this. And, and again, the goal is to be transformed. This past week I heard, uh, I was at a little retreat for a couple of days with one of our church planning networks. And I heard Crawford uh, Loritz say this, and it was really profound about our culture right now. One of the things that our culture right now is kind of just preaching or kind of living under the banner is kind of the idea and I know this is you know I'm, I'm in my 30s and so I'm not as cool and trendy like you 20 year olds but um, you know the idea of like keeping it real or keeping it 100 like I know you don't hear me say keeping it 100 um, but it's it's trying to live under this banner of authenticity by just kind of being uh, honest about who we are and where we're at but really no desire to get better or to mature, right? Like that's what our culture is right now. Everyone wants to live under the banner of being real, but with no actual direction or desire to actually mature, actually get better. And so with that, I want us to make sure that, again, our goal is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Our goal is to become like him. And so I don't want this just to be another series that we're walking through. I want this to truly be a series that, again, we are seeing what God has revealed to us as the story unravels and that we are then looking at from the totality of Scripture as Scripture is interpreting Scripture and it is creating doctrines. And that's really all a doctrine is, is where you take a specific topic that Scripture speaks towards over and over and over again, and it creates for itself a doctrine, a study of said topic. And so we are believing something. So God, God reveals himself in a certain way. He says something about himself, and that creates a doctrine of God. That's what we looked at last week, the fact that God is eternal, that God is all-powerful, that God is all-knowing, and that God is all-present, that he is everywhere at all times in his fullness. So we walk through scripture to see that scripture is revealing. It is telling the story that this is who God is. And today what we're going to look at is how, God, how this God who is eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-present, how he then has an activity. He then creates the heavens and the earth. And so we're going to look at a little bit of what that looks like, him creating the heavens and the earth. 
And again, obviously, and I've heard theologians say this is the most pregnant passage in Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, it, it has so much built within it that you really, I mean, we're trying to tackle it in two sermons, but you could spend two centuries just focusing on this, this one little verse. But we want to try to, as much as we can today, look at God creating the heavens and the earth, what his intention was there, what his design was there, so that we can better, as creatures, understand creator. And then be able to understand ourselves as creatures. That's what we want to do today. And so I want you to open your Bibles up again. You're there, Genesis 1-1. And, uh, and as I said, last week I think we memorized it in three seconds. Mainly because I know many of you have church backgrounds. So I want us to, to do it again, alright? Just read it with me one more time. Or, or recite it with me. Ready? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Alright, good job. That was, that was even better than last week. So here's what we want to look at. I've got five points that we want to look at in God creating the heavens and the earth. Number one is God created the heavens and the earth. That's number one. Uh, the number two that we're going to look at is God is the source and sustainer of everything. Three is God created everything good. Four is God invested in his creatures with responsibility and significance. And then five, that the diversity within creation is reflected, uh, reflective of of the diversity within God. So those are the five points that we're going to look at today as we walk through this. And so I know it's a small task, so let's just uh, dive right into it. When the Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth, it does not mean to suggest that he only created those two things. And what I mean by that is that the Bible is here employing a figure of speech. All right, It's called merism. It's a figure of speech in which he is kind of doing two contrasting views, heavens and earth. Um, it's also kind of like saying male and female. It's, it, it, or even kind of how we do vows when it comes to marriage, that I will love you in sickness and in health. There are two contrasting views in which, okay, if you're healthy, I'll love you, and if you're sick, I'll love you, but is there anything in the middle? Or for richer or for poorer? All right, so if you're rich, I'll love you. Or if you're poor, I'll love you. But what if you're middle class? Like, what, what if you're in the middle? Like, what does that look like? So, so what we're looking at here is, is anytime the Bible uses this type of expression that God created the heavens and the earth, it's not just limiting it to those two things. Although in our kind of known universe, we categorize everything in those two things. But what he's actually doing in the original language is, is again, a merism, which is, which is saying this is a totality of a statement. It's a way in which he expresses through kind of a poetic uh, narrative that God created everything in existence, but what we know in existence is heavens and earth based from the revealed knowledge that we have through creation and the revealed knowledge that we have through God's word, through his scriptures. So it's a totality here. And even though God has created all things, he has not created them all alike in significance or value. He's not created everything all alike in significance and value. And for those who are pet owners in here, um, it's going to be hard for you to amend this because, again, there is a distinction between the animal world and humans. There's a distinction between, I know some of you walking down the stairs today saw on the TV, there's, there's mountains and there's lakes and there's, and I put that up there specifically for you to be able to walk down and, and marvel at creation. Marvel at what God created. But mountains and lakes and sand and beaches and oceans and, and everything in between is not greater than, nor is it even equal to, humankind. Everything in creation, literally, if you're walking through the creative narrative of Genesis 1, God created this and it was good. And he created this and it was good. And he created this and it was good. It literally reads like a poem. And then it gets to him creating humankind, male and female, in his image. And he says it was what? Very good. It's the only time in the creative order that you get a difference in volume and value when it comes to what God created. And so not everything is created in this sense. Now, does that mean that we can then, you know, abuse animals? Absolutely not. There is a dominion that has been given to us to steward God's creation 
to steward everything that is around us. That's why plant trees, like water flowers, clean up like we did a couple of weeks ago here in our neighborhood. Do things that are stewarding creation, that God has given us that mandate. What he has created, and essentially what he has done in Eden, we are to cultivate all throughout the rest of the world. All throughout the rest of the world. We're to work it and toil it. And so in that, God has done something with humans that he's not done with anything else. He's in, in creating us in his image. He's allowed us to be as what theologians refer to as vice creators. Now, we don't create in the same way God creates, all right? The way God creates is, is, is there anything in my hand right now? It's not a trick question. I'm not like a magician where I'm going to be like, bam, flowers. Like, it's, there's nothing in my hand right now, okay? And so, as we looked at last week, in the beginning, God, all right? God existed eternally, completely independent from anything that he then created, so out of nothing, God created everything. We don't have that ability, okay? We don't have that ability. We can't even bend creation, like I said last week. Like, like there's, a, there's something about us that we have to create tools in, in order to make life easier, right? Like you can't push a nail into a piece of wood without finding a hammer, you just can't do it. You can't drink water. I mean, it's going to be very hard, but it, we have to make cups and stuff to make it easier in order to be able to drink it. Like it's, we cannot create like God creates something out of nothing. But he does give us the ability to create, like he says in Genesis 1, 27 through 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And we're going to tackle that a little bit in the next two weeks when it comes to male and female and what that looks like in God's design and what we are to believe about the doctrine of male and female being created. Because again, look at the confusion within our culture right now. I, in, in prepping for that sermon, I know that we preached, um, I think it was three years ago, uh, we preached in, in one of our Epiphany series on a Jan in January. When we, I mean, we were still back in the movie theater at this point. And we preached on gender. And so I looked back at that sermon to kind of pull some resources. And I'm like, it is so outdated from what has gone on in our culture in trying to redefine and, and, and reconfigure gender and male and female and what is what and how do we define that. And so... I had to go back to research. Thought I could research from myself, and that didn't work out too well. Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. Go and create more of who you are, essentially, is what he's saying there. Genesis 2.19, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Who created the names? Adam created names that he gave to all the animals, all the livestock, all the beasts. Genesis 3, 7. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And the first craft in scripture, they sewed fig leaks together and made themselves loincloths. All right, like, like, like they just started a clothing business. Right out of sin. Not saying clothing businesses are sinful, but they, they started a clothing business. All right. They're creating something from creation itself. And that's really something that is, that is intrinsic within us, being in the image of God. We're able to create. Genesis 6.14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside out with pitch. Like that's Noah. Has Noah ever created an ark before? No. No one has up until this point. Yet he's able to create. We are vice creators with God as he has created heavens and the earth. That is something that is distinct only to humans than anything else. Anything else. Number two, God is source and sustainer of everything. Second thing I want you to see is the fact that God is the only uncreated and eternal being in the universe who is also creator of all means that he is the source and sustainer of everything that exists. So we not only and we see this in Acts 17, we not only have our being in him, but we live and move in him as well. 
I want you to see this. Acts 17 verse 28 says, For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. We are his creation. We are his creatures. We are his thought. We are what he formed out of nothing. And in him and only in him do we contain ourselves. Do we continue to be ourselves? Do I not just right now melt in and become part of the earth? Like that doesn't happen because I'm living and moving and having my being in God himself. As not only my creator but my sustainer. We see this in Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's referring to Jesus Christ. Upholds the universe by word of his power. This is going back to his, his omnipotence, his all power that we looked at last week. Colossians 1, 15 through 18, one of my favorite passages in Scripture. Referring to Jesus, this is the, the great Christological verse, if you will. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Again, that totality phrase there. Visible and invisible. Everything you can see, taste, perceive, hear, touch, any of those things, as well as all the things that you can't see, can't touch, can't taste, can't smell, can't hear, whether it's visible or whether it's invisible, things that we don't even know exist yet, all of it was created by Jesus and for Jesus. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. They all hold together. He's the glue of creation. Not only is creation from him, through him, and for him. Not only is it by the word of Jesus that creation comes into existence. But it's also by the essence of Jesus that creation remains. Water remains water because Jesus says so. Grass remains grass because Jesus says so. The sun rises and sets because Jesus says so. Because he not only created it, wills it, but ordains it. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He's the head of the body, the church. Not only is he the creator of everything that we know, perceive, touch, smell, all those things, but he is also the creator of our body, the body of Christ. He's the creator of it. That's why he says in Matthew that we don't build his church. He builds his church. He builds his church. He created the church. He created his bride. This means that every person in the universe is subject to God and dependent upon him as creator and sustainer. No one, no one who exists is autonomous or independent. That's why I said last week that, that when you look at all of those attributes of God, when you look at his eternality, when you look at his um, all power, all knowledge, all presence, it really forms one word. He's Lord. He's Lord. And again, as I mentioned last week, he's Lord over believers and he's Lord over sinners. He's Lord over everyone. Like there will come a day when every knee will bow and confess that he is who? Lord. So you're either, he's either Lord of your life by uh, the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ and therefore you are forgiven and a part of his family as the saints or he is Lord of your life by wrath and judgment because you've rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ and you are still considered a sinner. But either way, he's Lord. He's Lord. No one is autonomous or independent from that. We belong to God, the absolute owner of everything. As Genesis 14, 19 states, is that he is the possessor of heaven and earth. And that means we are accountable to him. It's the aspect, um, it is this aspect of doctrine of creation that really paves the way for the gospel. It paves the way for the gospel. No doubt, and this is why Herman Bavink, Francis Schaeffer, and many others emphasize the importance of the doctrine of creation as what Bavink called the starting point of true religion. 
the starting point of true religion. What he means by that is without accountability, the need for grace and forgiveness evaporates. No doubt this is also why so many non-Christians seek to undercut or disprove, disprove the doctrine of creation. By trying to disprove the doctrine of creation, it gives them the freedom to do whatever they want in their own eyes. If there is no creator, then I'm not held accountable as creation. This is why, again, it's, it's ironic that the group that is most hostile towards trying to disprove God are the ones who believe God doesn't exist. Atheists. And the reason why is because they're, they're exerting every possible energy, ounce of thought, time spent, study possible of trying to suppress the truth that they know there is a God. So that it then justifies for them the fact that they want to live life in their own eyes. That they have given themselves over to what Proverbs 14.12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man. Like there's just, like as a non-believer, there's a way that seems right to us because we're not in relationship with Creator. So when we're not in relationship with Creator and, we, and, and, and therefore we don't know that He has a specific design for us, if we don't have direction or design or any of that, then we're going to just, as vice creators, try to create life for ourselves and we're going to try to define life for ourselves. But every time we define life for ourselves and it doesn't go the way we think it should go because, as this proverb says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. So even though I'm trying to do what I believe is right in my own eyes, it's frustrating me. It's frustrating me. And because it's frustrating me, and I'm looking out, and if I happen to look outside of myself, and I see creation, and as Romans 1 says, creation is there to point me to the fact that there is a creator. Now I'm having this battle within myself where there is a creator, but I have to keep exerting energy to suppress that truth. And to then give myself over to just trying to figure out a better way that's not going to lead to death. Either way we put it, there is a king. And there is a Lord. And there is a creator. And as his creation, all of creation is accountable. It's accountable to him. And we'll, we'll actually hit quite a bit more of that in the coming weeks when we get to the fall. Number three, God created everything good. Third thing I want you to see here is that God created everything good. These initial aspects of the doctrine of creation also mean that good and evil are not competing powers in the universe. And this one's, this one's hard, okay? Because I remember we even had some conversations this last week, you know, origin of evil. And again, we're going to... When we get to the fall, we're going to tackle into some of those things. Where did evil come from? Where did sin come from? It was present before Adam and Eve sinned in order for them to be tempted to sin. There's a, tr a, a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, what does that look like? Origin of evil, where does it come from? Who's Lucifer and who's Satan? Who's this, who's this serpent in the garden? We're going to tackle those, those questions and, and again... We'll have about three weeks to look at the story of it and look at the belief of it and look at how it impacts us on our daily lives. But um, it's difficult. But one thing is very certain. God is good. And the creation he brings into existence reflects his goodness. Therefore, evil cannot originate from a good God. Now again, it's hard for us as finite beings on this side of everything to be able to figure out how can he create something that then in its vice creation create evil. Come back in a few weeks and we'll look at it. <laughs> this is a little teaser trailer, okay? But the main point is that in his creation, God saw everything, as Genesis 1.31 says, 
everything that he had made. And behold, it was very, very good. Number four, God invested his creatures with responsibility and significance. God created humankind in his image and invested us with the right to exercise dominion means that we are stewards of his creation and accountable to him for how well we care for what he has made. We are responsible not only for how we personally take care of God's creation as individuals, but for how everyone else does as well. This is, this is woven into the idea of go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. Discipleship does not end at evangelism. Discipleship is not just going to someone and telling them that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and that Jesus Christ, and through his life and his death and his resurrection, has forgiven your sins if you'll receive and accept the gospel, if you'll receive and believe in him as who he is. That's the story and that's the belief, but that also then leads to formation. That gospel informs Every detail of their life because there is a process of reconciliation and restoration that is happening in every single person in this room right now. Which means there's a way in which you used to work that did not glorify God. And now that you have the gospel in your life, there's a way in which you can work that does bring glory to God. And so we want to work and, and get that gospel into you so that you work with patience. And that you work with love, and that you work with joy, and that you work with generosity, and that you work with kindness. We want the fruit of the Spirit that is birthed out of the gospel to literally permeate everything that is in your life. There's a way in which you used to relate to your spouse that was sinful, and still is sinful, and will be sinful. Yet the gospel is restoring and reconciling how you relate and love your wife and your husband. That is Christ-honoring as Christ loves the church. The gospel informs that and does that. And so this is our responsibility is to make disciples, to steward creation, and to steward one another. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. Yes. What's the world telling us right now? Don't judge me. What I'm telling you to do is judge me. Judge me. That's your call. I guess one of the things, if you walk through our, our DNA process and membership, and if you haven't yet, we're, we're, we're knocking out one step right here. One of our calls to one another in covenant membership is to rebuke each other. It's to rebuke each other. It's to say, I'm seeing you not in step with the Spirit. I'm seeing something in Christ that I'm seeing missing here. I'm seeing you not live out in patience. You know what? I've noticed maybe over the last couple of weeks, you've not been as joyful as I've seen you in other seasons. Is there something going on right now? Are you, are you giving yourself over to certain temptations and sins in your life? Like we want to lovingly pursue one another into those places just like the Spirit of God pursues us in those places to convict us. And to say you're robbing yourself of the joy that is to be had in Christ when you give yourself over to these temporary pleasures or selfishness or sin, whatever it is that you want to fill in the blank there. We're called to one another. One of the, the, and that's why, again, the proverb that I know one of my former pastors used to love all the time is, faithful is the wound of a friend, but deceitful is the kiss of the enemy. Faithful is the wound of the friend. We need members in this church who are willing to wound each other. Willing to wound each other. For the sake of, of, of saving something in their life. For the sake of keeping them from sin in their life. And I know that the medical professionals in here will understand this. That there are times when doctors have to wound you in order to ultimately heal you. We are called with the responsibility to cultivate society, cultivate those around us, to disciple those around us. In addition to being created 
to be creators, human beings are also equally invested with this significance and value. And here's what I mean by equally invested in this significance and value that we have. There is no hierarchy among humankind in God's creation. There's no one tribe, tongue, or race of people created to exercise dominion over all others. There's not one tongue, one tribe, one dominion, one race of people who are called to exercise dominion over all others. Every human being is created in God's image, regardless of what he or she might look like, where he or she might live, or what he or she might do. In this sense, it is proper to speak of the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood and sisterhood of man in this sense. We're all, again, and if you were, if you were really pull that into to just specifically Indianapolis, we are all equal, no matter socioeconomic status, no matter ethnic diversity, no matter uh, how old we are when it comes to demographic, age. None of those things matter when it comes to the image of God that is born on us and the equality that that then gives to us. And so what we've seen, and this, and this really even dates back, I mean, this is, like, I know we're in race wars right now, all throughout our country. I mean, it's, and it's uncomfortable for everybody, right? It's uncomfortable for everybody. But this is not new. This is not new. I mean, this has been going on not only in the entire history of America, but this has been going on over the last 2,000 years. This was going on in the first church with the difference between Jew and Gentile. And this was even going on predating that 400 years back to Malachi. We see this in Malachi 2, 1 through 10. Listen to this. And this is the Lord coming down and literally uh, convicting the priests, like the ones who know better. This is what he's telling them. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring. And I, this is great. I will spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offsprings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him, and Levi was one of the 12, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, who is the lineage of the priest for the entire nation of Israel. Just so you know who kind of Levi is. God saying, my Levi with covenant may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. And I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He knew me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in a peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So he's saying there, like, this is what the priest should do. The priest should preach peace, and there should be uprightness, and there should be uh, a welcomeness at the table of the priest, and that there essentially should be no partiality within them. And that people should come to them to know instruction from the Lord and to have, again, comfort and peace there with the Lord, relationship. But we see this in verse 8. But you, referring to the priest's, have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but you show partiality in your instruction. What they were essentially saying was, we're only going to teach the good stuff to those whom we choose to do that for. Whom we choose to associate with. Whom we choose to live life with. Whom we choose to invite over to our dinner tables. 
whom we choose to move into the neighborhood with. We're going to show partiality in your instruction. And so then he rebukes them. Have we not all one father? Are we not all originating from the same creator? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Every human being, again, when we're looking at God creating the heavens and the earth, we're getting into the apex of his creation. Humans. Humans. Every human being receives life from the same parent. And when I mean parent, I'm referring to creator. I'm referring to God. This means that there is no place, no place in creation for racism or prejudice of any kind based on skin color, hair color, gender, height, weight, ancestry, or anything else that is a part of the created order, which leads me to the last point. Number five. The diversity in creation is suggestive of the diversity within God. Differences in physical appearance, gender, mental capability, personality, gifting, and relationship all exist in the human race from the moment of creation. The fact that God has created the entire human race in his own image indicates that that his image obviously encompasses the incredible diversity that we see all around us. There's not one person created by accident. Not one person created by accident. Not one human. And we see this suggested in the diversity or maybe better complexity that exists within God himself. Like God is a diverse being. Father, Son, Spirit. Co-equal, co-existing. And this is what we are called to cultivate in how we go and make disciples restoring humanity back to the way God created it and intended it to be. God created the heavens and the earth and he created them diverse just as he is diverse. And I know I'm not supposed to get into kind of the practical information part yet, but here's the truth. God created Indianapolis, namely the people of Indianapolis. And he ordained Indianapolis to be currently 60% white and 40% people of color. Like that's the demographic of Indianapolis Metropolitan. 60% white, 40% people of color. And it's trending towards being 50-50 by, uh, by 2030. 50-50. What we have to stop doing is picturing Adam and Eve as, as this. We have to stop. We have no idea what they look like. Truly. Like nowhere does it say that he, you know, I mean, if anything, we're looking at Adam. Best thing you can compare him to is whatever color dirt is. Right? I mean, that's what he was made from. And if you're looking at Eve, what's, I mean, last time I ate some ribs, I know they're cooked, but they're not white. Like, we, we, we have to stop viewing them this way. We have to stop viewing Jesus this way. He's not. Now, we have no idea what Adam and Eve look like. We do have some signifiers of what Jesus actually looked like based on his ethnicity. And it's much more like this. It's much more someone that if we were working TSA check line, we'd probably pull them out. It's just true. It's just true. Here's another story or fact for you. Our church, and I know we can look around. Right now in this room, 
And I'm really ballparking here. So if you like dive deep and you're like, you know, I'm 8% this, we're 100% white in this room. I know we got some mixed in Latin and stuff like that. But just if someone were to guess, we're looking at this room, high 90s percent white. Our neighborhood that our church meets in, and I know a lot of us are commuters, but we're also invested here. Because even though, yes, we are moving out of this space and moving three blocks north, we're still in the exact same neighborhood. And this neighborhood is 27% white, 73% people of color. We're a white church in a black neighborhood. It's just true. We're a white church in a black neighborhood. And if we truly believe that Acts 17, 26 through 27 says that he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him, yet He's actually not far from them. If we actually believe that, then that means it is no accident that our church gathers within this neighborhood. It's no accident. God brought us here. And He brought us here for a reason. It's to make disciples of all nations, including those across the street. Including those across the street. If the purpose of God is to restore and reconcile all things back to God's intended creation and thus to reflect His glory, then the purpose of the district must be to make disciples of Indianapolis that reflect the diversity of God and the diversity of Indianapolis. And so I'm spitballing here, but I think a good goal for our church is to be 50% white, 50% people of color. I'm just, just a goal. It will not change. It will not change if we do not change our pursuit on a daily basis. And when I mean by pursuit, I mean by what we choose to engage in. Where we dine, what um, grocery stores we shop at, who we invite to our dinner tables. It will not change if we do not take it seriously. God has entrusted to us a ministry within a context. And here's the thing too, I'll say this, because I'm from White House, Tennessee, that I've said is true to its name. A town of about 15,000 people, 97%, 98% white. Not every church has to be multi-ethnic. But what I do absolutely 100% believe is that every church must reflect its community. Its community in which it exists. And right now, guys, and I know this is uncomfortable, and I know you're like, man, we got visitors here. I mean, I was having conversations this week. Josh was there with me. Like, we're having conversations with churches that have pushed for this. And every time they do, there's a purge. There's a purge. Because there are people who are not willing to take this seriously or who disagree with it who are not going to allow their family to have sin jump on them. God created the heavens and the earth. And the apex of his creation is humankind. And that humankind is represented in every person that you see. Every person that you see. The reason why there's segregation is because we have a discipleship issue. That's it. That's it. That's the main reason. So we as a church, we are going to make disciples. And we're going to pursue those who represent our community. And, and here's the beauty. is like we've kind of jumped ahead of you, whether you wanted us to or not. 
And so we're already investing in an organization that is helping us. We're working with the downtown group. And the downtown group right now is being trained on how to go door to door, how to have conversation with their neighbors, how to find out what the real needs of the neighborhood is so that the church can start to become a catalyst for meeting needs within the neighborhood, but also building relationships within the neighborhood. And this is going to reflect every possible person that we can find within that neighborhood. And so that group downtown right now is working through that. And so we're using them as kind of the case study, the guinea pig, if you will. And what they're going to do as, as we get to the end of summer moving into the fall is the downtown group is going to be helping train all of our other groups to do the very same thing in our context and in our communities. And so we're just going to keep working it up. And my hope and my prayer is at that point, once we reach with the downtown group and seeing all the demographics that are represented around them, and then we see the midtown groups and what are represented there, and we see the Carmel group and what's represented up there, is that our church will begin, because of the relationships that are going out and building into the community around them, will begin discipling those relationships within the community around them, and our church will begin to, let's just say, have some flavor. Have some flavor to it. And begin to represent God's created heavens and created earth. And I think one of the best things for us to start doing right now is to pray one simple thing. In the Lord's Prayer, for it to be on earth as it is in heaven. And the last time I looked, at the end of Revelation, and he's referring to what it looks like in heaven as it is on earth, is there's every, trung, every, every tongue, every tribe, every nation, and they're all white. If you actually look through the majority of, of, of the world, white's minority. All right? We're going to get to heaven, and we're going to be shocked. Pray for it to be on earth as it is in heaven. Pray for it to be in Indianapolis as it is in heaven. Pray for it to be in the district as it is in heaven. Just start praying. Heart change. That then leads to us engaging outward. How do I tie that to communion? Because we do. We finish every service with communion. How do I tie that to communion? I think this is the best way to tie it to communion. Ephesians 2, 11 through 16 says this. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, and just so you know, Gentiles, which were considered the racially outcast, as we see in scriptures, because there, the, there were the chosen people of God, the Jews, all right? They, they had the first right to the gospel. Gentiles basically get the leftovers, all right? Once, once the, the scriptures finally get to Acts 9 and 10 and, and the gospel gets out of Jerusalem and then starts going to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, then the Gentiles are led into it with Cornelius and his family. Then we're starting to get some flavor in that first church. It was just all Jewish up, uh, up front, but now we're starting to get some flavor in the church there. And so what we then see here is that, guess what? You are a Gentile too. Like, outside of William who we baptized a month ago. He's Jewish. All right, outside of him, most everyone in this room is Gentile. Just want you to know that. Like, you were not started out privileged when it comes to the gospel. You Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God 
in one body through the Christ, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. First thing I said for us to start tackling this and, and getting our church to represent more of the creative heavens and the earth is to pray. The second thing for us to do is to look at Jesus on the cross and the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood that crushes the dividing wall of hostility. When we keep seeing ourselves rightly in what our part was on the cross and what Jesus was willing to do in order to come save sinners and to pursue sinners and to pursue discomfort, man, I pray that that breaks down for us all of those things that we give excuses for. I don't know any people of color. I just don't relate. I don't ever see them. They're not in my neighborhood. I think they're just excuses. They're excuses. And what I want us to, what I want us to be known as, if the Lord were to come to us as a church like he did in Malachi with the priests there, I hope he does not say, you faithless generation. I want to be faithful. I want to be faithful. This is God's story in the created heavens and the earth. Underneath your seats, there's communion. I want you to go ahead and grab it. Go ahead and take the six minutes that it takes to unravel it. <laughs> but I really want us to do those two things as we partake of this communion. I want us to pray, Lord, in Indianapolis as it is in heaven. In Indianapolis as it is in heaven. In my heart as it is in heaven. I want you to pray that. And then I want you to remember. Remember Jesus Christ going and shedding his blood and breaking his body. To destroy that dividing wall of hostility. And maybe then, maybe then, we as a church, when we leave from here, will be like what I said at the very beginning, maturing and being transformed into the likeness of Jesus who's willing to go and pursue all the outcasts, all the outsiders, all the marginalized, whether it was Samaritans, half-bred Jews, women, whoever it was, he was willing to pursue. And if we're going to become like Jesus, that then becomes our reality. It becomes our reality. So let's pray and let's remember and let's celebrate in communion together. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at